this weekend, I want to speak to us on a subject titled called Jesus Does uh, Q&A, okay? Question and answer. It's funny how after 2,000 years, there are things that happened in the days of Jesus that continues to happen today, amen? There are things that are really popular then that remains popular because there's something about human nature that hasn't changed over all these uh, years and decades and centuries. Of course, the form in which these things happen may somewhat change, but the essence pretty much remains uh, the same. Case in point, we find Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 to verse 48, answering a series of questions that were being posed to him. Now, in today's uh, modern-day vernacular, we would call this a Q&A session, okay? And who doesn't like a question-and-answer session? And I'm quite certain that Jesus, during his time of ministry, three and a half years on the earth, had, was, was confronted by many, many questions. Amen. But I would assume this, that the bulk of the questions he was confronted with had to do with requests. People coming to him and says, Lord, would you do this for me? Lord, would you help me? God, would you heal uh, my child? The disciples said to Jesus, can I sit on your right hand and on your left hand? Other times, you know, they would say to the Lord, explain this to me. And the requests that were presented to the Lord must have, must have been endless, okay? But this passage in Matthew chapter 22 is somewhat different from your typical set of supplication and asking for assistance. But instead, it is a series of questions that were meant really to test Jesus. Jesus was being put in the spotlight and the questions were directed at him with, uh, you know, with the live audience around, literally hundreds, thousands of people around him, and a recording crew, courtesy of which why we have a record of this in our scriptures today. And the intentions behind the questions in all likelihood were also malicious and were meant to catch Jesus in his words. Now, of course, when you look at the nature of the questions, there were definitely, uh, there were clearly issues of controversy that Jesus was, was dealing with. And there was a real a genuine test of the Lord's substance that was happening there as well. Now, at the same time, um, I always say this to us, that when we read the Bible and we, when, when we read the Scriptures, it is important for us to put on a particular set of lenses. And I like to present this set of lens uh, by framing it as a question. Now, why was this included specifically in the Bible? Think about this. There must have been literally thousands, tens of thousands of questions that have been posed to the Lord. And we know this because John, who wrote the Gospel of John, said this, that if all the deeds of Christ were recorded, then there would not be enough books in this planet to contain everything that he's done. But yet, is it why, yet why is it that the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, zoomed in on these three questions that were being asked and then records it for all posterity and for our learning and reading? Amen? And this is an important question that every time when we read the Bible, you come across something, it's always good to ask this, why did Jesus determine for this to be recorded for us? Now, of course, the straightforward answer is that these questions were deeply fundamental and their application is multi-layered and carry truth for us despite the passage of time, meaning that it has a constant relevancy for us no matter what era of time that you lived in. Now, what I want to do is I want to take these three questions and explain it for us this weekend. And as we take a closer look at these questions, it's also for us, for me to try and explain to us why these questions has relevance for us even today, okay? And to see a little bit, catch a little bit of the expansiveness of the answers that Jesus presented to the questions. 
Now, the first question has to do with paying taxes to Caesar. And the question was posed in Matthew 22, verse 17. And it simply is this, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay. Now, you know, for us today, you know, this is obviously not, um, you know, a, a particularly um, controversial question, right? And this is, after all, a monetary question. If today I were to ask a question, or any of you would ask me, hey, pastor, should I pay my taxes to uh, Inland Revenue, you know? And, uh, and publicly, if I were to say anything else apart from yes, you know, they, I'll get arrested after this, okay? <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and we should pay our taxes, okay? And, um, you know, so the question is, should we pay our taxes? Now, in the, in the context of, of the Lord's Day, the question isn't quite as straightforward as it is for us today, right? And we see this question in a completely different light today. And the reason is because Israel at that time was a conquered nation and there, was, there, were, con there were continual strong nationalistic sentiments among the listeners. And that's why if you read the history of the days of Jesus, there were constant rebellions that were being staged against the Roman Empire. Right? And so when the people, the Jewish people paid taxes to Caesar at that time, it was a sign of their subjugation. It was, a, it was to say to the, to the authorities and to the people, hey, we've given up, we've surrendered, and we yield ourselves to you as our conqueror. And that's what it means to pay the taxes. So through the taxes, they were communicating that. Now, the, the people that asked the questions were the Pharisees and the Herodians. And this is funny, okay? This is very strange because these people that came with the question, they were groups of people that were actually working very closely with the Romans and they worked with the Romans in order to retain a degree of power and authority in Israel uh, while Israel remained under Roman conquest. So they cut a deal with the Romans and they said, we'll help you maintain control and just give us some, share some of your authority with us. And that's what the Romans would do in all the places that they conquered. And yet these very people that were in cahoots with the Roman Empire posed this question to Jesus in hopes that Jesus would speak against the Romans. Right? And if so, they would be able to catch him in the act of doing so and then to penalize Jesus and then send the Romans after the Lord. So there was this hypocrisy that was there and of course Jesus spotted it and he rightly pointed out their hypocrisy in his reply to them. But he didn't just point out the hypocrisy, he actually goes on and answers the question, even though the question in itself was a trap. In verse 21, his answer, we all know, it says this, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And of course, he, found, he took a Roman coin, and on it he asked whose inscription was it, and it was Caesar's inscription, and then he said, Render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God. So I want to break his answer down for us and bring an application for us, okay? And the first thing I want to show us is that we, that from his answer, we understand this, that we have obligations and responsibilities in this world. This is what Jesus was seeking to establish because if he knew that it was a trap, he could ignore the question and not answer it, but he answered it and his answer was recorded for us because he had an intention for this. Now, Jesus pointed out firstly that the currency that was being used for the taxation bore the image and inscription of Caesar. In other words, they were operating under the Roman uh, system. And accordingly, they were required to fulfill their obligation under that system. Now, this again was reiterated for us by the Apostle Paul as well as the Apostle Peter in Romans 13.1 and 1 Peter 2 uh, verse 13 respectively, okay? Now, Romans 13.1 says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. 
This is an instruction that Jesus speaks to us and the apostles reiterate. So if there is a mask mandate that is imposed by the authorities, you know what? Put on your mask. Because the Bible tells you that you are to be subjected to the governing authorities. Please don't walk around and tell people, I'm a sovereign. God is sovereign. alone. You know? And this is how we're supposed to behave. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, in saying these things, you've got to understand the context. For us, we understand, we embrace. It's not difficult for us to understand these things, but for those days, it was very difficult. Now, Peter also says this. He says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Right? Now, in the days of Jesus, there's something unique that we might not appreciate. And that is the fact that faith and nationality are one and the same thing. Now, if you at that point of time uh, wanted to become a follower of Jehovah God, then there is no way for you to retain your race category. You had to become Jewish. You had to be you know, embedded and engrafted into the Jewish heritage, right? And if you wanted to you know, follow Joe, then for the men, you had to be circumcised. You had to go through a process in which you literally become Jewish, and in becoming Jewish as well, you then have, uh, carry a new nationality, and then you become Israeli, so to speak, in, the, uh, in, our today, in today's terms. Right? But what Jesus did was that Jesus ushered in a concept that was very, very different from those days. In fact, he said these things in order to prepare us as Christians to have the ability to bear dual citizenship. And that's what he did. He broke down that barrier where religion and nationality becomes the same thing. And instead, he shows us that we are firstly citizens of the kingdom of God, but simultaneously, we are also citizens of the nations that we are part of. And the reason this question is recorded for us in scriptures is not merely to satisfy the petty attempts at discrediting Christ, but instead, Jesus foresaw the need to lay a foundation and a pathway for the Christian faith to flourish all over the world, whatever national boundaries that we reside in. The Lord essentially, through this one answer, established for us a, a, as a people, as a people of faith that is supposed to grow in every nation in the world. Amen. And this just gives the pathway for the Christian faith to flourish. It is a foundation for us to understand that we have an obligation and we have a responsibility as Christians to participate and to be engaged in the societies that God has placed us in. It is to enable us to embrace a dual citizenship, one that is natural and the other one that is spiritual. Amen. But the Lord doesn't stop that. The second part of His answer to them, He says, render to God what belongs to God. And the question then bears to be answered, what does God want from us? Because clearly from Caesar, he wants his taxation money. But what is it that God wants for us? Now, in telling us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and into God what is God, I think Jesus was telling us that what God requires from us is not the same as what our earthly citizenship asks of us. 
The Pharisees and the Herodians, they were obsessed with one thing. They were really interested in accumulating wealth, money, power, authority, and control. And so they come against the Roman Empire and they are against, because they saw religion through these eyes and hence they saw Rome as a conflicting entity because Rome was seeking after the same thing, power, control, influence, wealth, Right? And so for them, when they posed this question, they thought to themselves, hey, if I can trap Jesus in this, then Jesus says something because, you know, they, they, they were in conflict. They wanted the same thing. They were contesting for the same thing as the Roman Empire. But you know, Jesus, what Jesus did was to indicate that, hey, that's not what the kingdom of God is interested in. In fact, the kingdom of God is interested in a different, very different set of priorities. Now consider one chapter later in Matthew 23, 23. And Jesus said this, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. And these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You see, the weightier things of our faith pertains to justice, to mercy, faith, hope, love. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 58 tells us that the weightier matters that God is interested in is how we treat our workers, how we treat the ones who work with us. God is interested in, in seeking peace and harmony that we would have with one another to feed the poor, to clothe those who are naked, to free those who are bound, to honour the Sabbath and not to forget how we treat our wives, our spouses, is really important to the Lord. These are the things that God is requiring of us and we must render these things to the Lord. Amen? In fact, you know, many times what we are, you know, in rendering these things to God, they are in fact complementary to our obligation under Caesar. Amen? And now this is the formula that Christ has given to us on how we are to function in our dual citizenship. So the Lord took this opportunity and this question is recorded for us because the answer was far more expensive than what the question warranted, you see? As far as the question was concerned, it was just to trap the Lord. But the Lord used this to open up something that paved the way for the church for the next 2,000 years. Now, the second question that was raised re, re, uh, uh, pertains to the resurrection, okay? And this is classic. I love this question. Because who isn't interested in a question about the afterlife? You know, and what happens to us after we breathe our last? Where do we go? What happens? Where does our soul go to? Do our consciousness disappear? Now, in the context of the Sadducees who asked this question, it was really a theological one that they could not work out because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So what they did is they created this elaborate and outlandish scenario of a woman who was married seven times to seven brothers and then they all died and they saw in the afterlife, you know, it makes no logic at all. Whose wife would she be? And God is not illogical. This is their argument. And yet the Lord answered them in a very clear way. To say that the Sadducees had failed to understand the Scriptures, and not just that, they have failed to comprehend the reality and the power of God. Right? And, you know, and, 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 you know there is, there's a definite and constant fascination with the afterlife. I promise you this. People are asking these questions in their minds all the time. In fact, the older you get, the nearer towards the end of your life, the more you're going to be fascinated by this question. I have been thinking about the afterlife more, more than I've ever done in my whole life. Because I'm coming 50 soon, two more years. Right? And you know that you've finished half your life already. And you're thinking about the afterlife. And I'm telling you this, it's an important thing. I came across this book titled um, 
Psalm 40 Tales from the Afterlife by David Eagleman. I don't recommend it, so I'm not going to show a picture of it, but it's a fictional book. It's for entertainment. And what the author tried to do is try to imagine 40 different possibilities of the afterlife and how entertaining it is. So in one afterlife, you know, everybody's consciousness is put together into a central consciousness, you know, and then you get to see what happens, everything else. So your, your consciousness uh, continues to exist. And then in another uh, story, he, told, he tells about how this, uh, uh, our afterlife is just, you know, when we die, we only congregate with the people that we do know, and we, we just don't meet the rest of the people that we're never in contact with, you know? And there are all these fascinations uh, with it because, you know, while it is done for entertainment purposes, it is certain that there is a great curiosity and uncertainty about what happens when we breathe our, life, our last, and it's real, and people are fearful, and people are concerned about it. The question is, is there an afterlife? Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you this, there definitely is an afterlife, and the alternatives are only two, heaven or hell. The time frame is for eternity, for it is given to us to die once, and thereafter is the judgment. And where a tree falls, there it lies. In the state in which you die shall be your existence and how you will be judged for all eternity. Qualification for heaven is simple. It's only through faith in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, because by our own strength, we are insufficient and incapable of attaining eternal life. In the ultimate act of love, God came down, He died for all mankind and made open a way for salvation so that by believing and trusting in what He has done for us on the cross and receiving Jesus into our hearts, there can we come into eternal life with Him. Amen. There is no other way. This is the only way prescribed by God and it is a way that no human mind could have ever imagined. It is not conceived by philosophy. It was a divine plan that was birthed from the heart of the Creator God. And I want to say this, our afterlife is going to be very, very different from our present life that we lead. The nature, the construct of our bodies are going to be different. The order of things are going to be different. And I want to give you a quick little list about what the afterlife is going to look like, okay? In, uh, you know, in, when, when we are resurrected, we'll have a body that is very different from our physical body now. Philippians chapter 3, 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 42, 44. You can go back and take a look at it. I mean, the body, the, the Bible tells us that we'll have a body like the resurrected Christ, right? And will you consume food in heaven? Yes, you will. Remember, Jesus came down, He consumed food, right? What food will you have? Will you still have, you know, steak, rare, meat? I don't know, you know? It's going to be good, okay? Uh, there's only one food I know that's not going to be in heaven, that's durian, okay? So, <laughs> I tell people this, you know, might as well get used to heaven now, you know? Just quit durian, you know? <clears throat> don't leave church because of that, okay? Please. <laughs> not only that, we're going to be judged on our works, on the, on, the, on, on the judgment seat of Christ, and that will determine the reward. Let me say this, that salvation is by grace and through faith in our believing, but every reward in heaven is by works, not the works, uh, not, not, not de dead works, but works that are filled with faith, and that is 2 Corinthians uh, 5.10. Amen. God's going to judge us by our works. When we go to heaven, there will be roles and functions. 2 Timothy 2.12 talks about reigning with Christ and ruling. There's authority, there's function. And then, of course, in heaven, when we will come to a perfect environment where there is neither tears, nor sorrow, nor pain, and it will be such a different equilibrium and atmosphere around us. Amen. And most importantly, the afterlife, you know, and this, this is where the, the, the importance comes. Why did Jesus record this for us? Okay. And, and when you look at the Bible in, in, in its 
full length, you'll realize that the Bible focuses way more on talking about the present life and than in the afterlife. And the Bible tells us very clearly about the afterlife, the way to it, but the Bible doesn't focus on that. It talks about our present life, and the reason is this. The afterlife is meant to help us calibrate our perspective on the present life. When we know and realize that our present life affects our afterlife for all eternity, it should change the way we think. It should change the focus of our lives. It should change and calibrate the pursuit that we've set before us. How are you going to make this present life count for eternity. And that's the perspective that God wants to. You know, and it's time for us, when you see eternity, then I'm telling you, you, you're going to shake off some of the things that are holding on to you. You're going to see how unimportant it is to hold that grudge that you've been holding on to. Just a couple of days ago, you know, as, you know, my wife and I, we went out somewhere and then, you know, and I was on my phone, I stepped out on the road and then this car came and then they stopped and then I just stepped back and I just looked at the car and the lady saw me looking at her and then she wind down the window and started shouting, ah, you know? So in my, in my enthusiasm, I shouted back at her, Why? Shout for what? <laughs> and my wife said, hey, you crazy? Huh? I said, yeah, for fun, huh? you know? She liked to shout, I shout back at all. <laughs> and then the funny thing is for three days, you know, I couldn't get that out of my mind. Silly people, you know, like, why Singaporeans like that, you know? And I tell you, when you know that there is an eternity, these things, just stop dwelling on it, okay? It doesn't matter, right? Just forgive and forget and move on because there are better things to put your attention on, right? And sometimes, and when Jesus talks about these things and gives us a hint of the afterlife, it is to cause us to focus in and say, hey, there's so many things that happens around us that are unimportant, that seeks to hold us back and snare us, shake them off because there is an eternity waiting for us. Amen? The third question, finally, is a question about the, great, the greatest commandment. You know, uh, they came to Jesus in verse 33, 36, and says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in law? Which is the most important thing? Now, this final question is really a question about the priorities of life, right? After when you ask, what is the most important thing? What is the, most great, what is the greatest commandment? It is, taught, it is to help us focus and says, hey, this is what we need to do. You know, the lawyer who raised the question basically asked a miss. And when you have a question asked amiss, sometimes your answer also goes amiss. But you see, Jesus didn't just answer him duly, but he, he, and, and, and he, he answered him, but he didn't stop there. What Jesus did then was to point out that the commandments, the laws and the prophets, didn't stand on one commandment, one leg, but it stood upon two legs, two commandments. In verse 37 to 40, Jesus said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It has to be both of them together, loving God, loving people. This is where sometimes spiritual people tend to get it wrong. To focus on God without focusing on people is to ask amiss, to remove the second leg of loving people and the gospel will become completely different. The whole laws and the commandments, the whole Old Testament and New Testament falls apart. The scripture collapses. And what amazes me about this is that when we raise a question, Jesus doesn't just answer the content of our question. He answers the issues from which those questions rise. The questions you ask shows the Lord what really is in your heart. What are the real things that are stirring inside of you? And our questions reflect our internal biases, our, our fear, our pride, contentions, much, much more. 
Now, in this case, the issue with the Pharisees was that they didn't like the idea of loving people, right? And that's why they asked the question the way they asked. They, you know, are they spiritual? Are they devout? You bet the Pharisees were very devout. They go through extreme means to express their devotion to God, probably far more extreme than we do today. They would memorize scriptures, chapters by chapters, chunks by chunks. They will write them and they'll tie them around their foreheads. They'll put them around their arms. They were phylacteries and they would spend hours standing, praying, reciting and they would abstain from this and they'll abstain from that. They will live in a very extreme manner. They were so devout and yet without the second lake of the commandment, their devotion became legalism. Without the second lake of the commandment, they missed everything so that when the Messiah stood in front of them, the one that they stand in the temple praying and saying, send your Messiah. And yet when the Messiah came, they could not see the Messiah, though he stood right in front of them. Instead, they would, uh, they would crucify him. They would condemn him. You see, the first commandment was focused to such an extreme that they failed to see the component. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just answer the question. Jesus answered the issue that was inside their hearts. Likewise, this is the foundation that God wants us to lay in our Christian faith, and He's laying this foundation that the Christian faith isn't just about loving God. It is also about loving people in tandem. The two must go together. We must hold both together. You know, in fact, in my experience, I think loving God is not difficult. Now, I know, I, I know that that is a, a somewhat of an overstatement, because there are times in our devotion to God that God would require us to do things that are extremely difficult, Right? But generally, God is not irritating, you know? <laughs> God is patient. God is loving. You know, He's kind. You know, He, he speaks with great gentleness. Everything a human person doesn't do, okay? <laughs> and so loving people is difficult. Loving people is time-consuming. It's inconvenient, right? I mean, you can choose what time you want to do your quiet time, right? I woke up late a bit now, you know, never mind, I do later, I do tonight. You try doing that with your spouse? She asked, so you had an appointment with your spouse at 8 o'clock. Is it at 9 o'clock? I wait to 8 p.m. then go. <laughs> we'll open up the foyer to come, for you all to come and stay, okay? When you get kicked out of your house. Loving people is just difficult. And yet, this is what God calls us to. Amen. And you see, as we consider these questions that are being asked, we also need to look beyond the surface of the questions that that are being asked itself. You know, why are these questions pertinent then and is just as important now? How does these questions speak about our nature, you know, our inquiry into the, the state of life, our pursuit of understanding and knowing, hey, Lord, why is it such, right? And, and, and I, I want to say this, okay, that, that the Lord loves questions. Sometimes, you know, we, you know, it's, I, and I understand that and we say, hey, you know, we just hear from God, we obey. And, and that's wonderful. But, you know, that's not me, okay? I hear from God and I always ask, uh, why? <laughs> but why, you know? I, the Lord speaks to me and I, I says, Lord, please give me an alternative. I don't want to do it this way. And maybe you're like me. Maybe there are things in your life that you just don't understand. He says, Lord, why must it be like that, right? And the fact that Jesus took the time to answer questions that were directed to him with an intention to hurt him. How much more he would answer our questions when we raise it in sincerity? You know, I want to bring this to a close very quickly. Our time is up. This morning, I had a strange dream. 
I'm not going to share with you the nature of the dream and you got to know something. I'm not past young. I'm not a dreamer. I maybe dream once in two years, okay? <laughs> and I, if I see something from God, most of the time, it's because I see a vision, you know, or I see an image or something like that. I don't dream. But this morning, I had such a clear dream and the dream came down to specific numbers and things like that, you know. And I'm just pondering about it and I really feel the Lord saying, to me that there are people in, in this house, in this season, those of you who are watching online as well, that there is a season of favour that God is bringing to people in this house. You know, there, there are things that we have been restrained by. We don't have enough space. We don't have enough money. I don't have the ability. I don't have the capacity. And I just feel that in this season of favor, God is expanding and increasing our capacity. If you need space, He'll give you more space. If you need more capital, He'll increase your capital. If you need ability that you don't have, He will give you abilities that you... But I also believe it's for a season. It's not a constancy because there's something that God wants to accomplish in your lives. And I don't know who in this congregation or who is listening that you need to hear that, that there is a desire in your heart to do something more there is a desire of saying, of saying to the Lord, Lord, I just wish I had a bit more of this. I wish. And, you know, it's not selfish. It's just, a, you know, a sense. Some of you are saying, Lord, I wish I had a bit more time with my children. I wish I had a little bit more opportunity. And you think that those things have passed you by. And I just really believe that what you thought has passed you by, God is going to bring and revisit in your life. And God's going to give you another chance at this. Amen? And, and, and I just really feel like there are people out there. This is a word for you. This is a word for you. This morning as we were standing here, I really felt the Lord said that, that He's going to bring a wave of healing this morning in this service. You know, and for those who are listening, I, I saw like stones disappearing. I, and I don't just mean specifically stones. I just really felt the Lord said that there are things in your body that needs to disappear. It needs to come out. It needs to be gotten rid of. And God's going to do that. There's an anointing right now that's coming over this place and all that are listening that God is going to extend His hand to heal and to cause foreign things within your body to disappear and to melt in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, and, and, and I want to just say this to us. You know, the Lord answers these questions to help us know that we are both citizens of heaven and citizens of the nations in which He's placed us. And we're to function according to that. Not only that, He wants to recalibrate the way we live life, knowing that there is an afterlife for all eternity. And finally, He wants again to bring a balance into us that it is loving God and loving people. Let's all stand to our feet as we bring this time to a close. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, that you're not far away, your voice is not foreign, that we don't have to traverse the universe, Lord, to seek you, Lord, but you have traversed eternity, Lord, to seek us, to find us, oh Lord, and to, and to, to seek us out, Lord, and to save us and to reveal yourself to us. Lord, who is sufficient for such wondrous knowledge, God? Who is able to contain such a thought that the psalmist said, what is man that you are mindful of him? And I want to ask you, my brothers and sisters, if you put your own name there, you know, who am I that God would consider me and know my name and come after me in this way? I'm telling you the magnitude of what he's doing for us.
the understanding He wants to give us, Lord, you know, the, the perspective He wants to place within us. What a loving God. And I pray that today as we stand here in His presence, a heart of worship will spring up inside of us. A heart of adoration will well up within us. For God did not call us to religion. God has called us to relationship. God has called us to be His voice, to be His witness here upon the earth. The Lord, the world is waiting for a church, a people that will rise up with a testimony of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, who will live it out and will show who He is to them. And Father, we pray, help us, Lord, wherever we are, whatever sphere it is, Lord. Lord, we do not despise the days of small beginning, even if it is our own homes, if it is our little classroom. Even if it is one person, Lord, help us to be faithful, Lord, to those things in which you have given unto us, Lord. And Lord, we just uh, again pledge our love, our allegiance to you, Lord, our adoration for the Son of God, the greatest, Lord, the fairest of 10,000, O God, the Prince of Peace, O God, Lord, on whom the government is established, a government that shall have no end forever and ever in all eternity. Lord, we give you praise, glory, honour. And now, Lord, I speak thy blessings over your congregation. Uh, my brothers and my sisters, the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap off and shall we? You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.